Hi, this is Love Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Hi there. I'm Carol Jerkin-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and we are so happy to have you tonight. We're talking to Rob White, who has been exploring the Me Too movement. And he is an amazing author, educator, and sexologist who has been checking the pulse of people with the Me Too movement, and he is here to talk to us so I'm gonna I'm gonna actually invite him on, and I've never done this before. But here we go. Let's uh, let's take a, a trip and see if we can add his number. So you know this is so interesting because sometimes technology fails us, and what I notice. Hey, Rob. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Welcome to the Sex Health with Carol the Coach Show. I am sorry about that technological glitch. I have no idea what happened. But I'm so happy to have you on the show because, (laughs) you know, you really are a sexologist, you're an educator, and you're a clinician who works with people with any kind of sexual compulsivity. And you've really been doing a lot of work around the Me Too movement, haven't you? And I'm a fan of Carol the Coach. Yes, I have. <laughs> to get that in there. So tell um, me a little bit about that. What what brought you to the Me Too movement? Well, some of, some folks may know, and that's not exactly entirely who your audience is, but I do a lot of training as a professional for therapists. So I run around the country and sometimes around the globe teaching around intimacy disorders, teaching therapists about sex addiction, all of that stuff, infidelity. So... Um, um, so, you know, one of the things that I've noticed, of course, is that we're, us therapists, we're going through Me Too like everyone else. You know, we're watching it on TV, we're hearing about it, we're treating clients, and yet I don't really hear us talking about it a lot. And so one of the things I wanted to do in some of the conferences I'm involved with was give therapists a chance to talk about it. I wanted to see what they were thinking. And, you know, therapists tend to be pretty articulate if you let us open our mouths. So I have done five so far groups um, of professionals, probably in the United States, about 250 people altogether, where I have given the women in the group uh, a chance to really share how Me Too, the movement, has affected them personally and professionally. And then the men listen, and then they give a little feedback, and then I ask the men to take a turn and say, how has Me Too affected you personally and professionally? And they take a turn, and the women give some feedback. 
And with that simple exercise, I have learned so very much. So what have you learned? Tell me a little bit about what people are talking about. You know, it's kind of hard to say, Carol, because it's painful. Um, What I've learned is painful, Um, especially as a man, um, because I don't think I ever really understood Me Too. And I have treated people, as you all know, I've spent 25 years treating uh, people in the workplace who sexually locked out, treating people having to say, I've been treating all of these issues. But just from a global perspective of what, what women talk about, what I have observed in doing Me Too groups, and not just one, I had to do several to get this. One group didn't do it, two didn't. But by the time I'm rounding my fifth group, I'm beginning to understand that there is not a woman on the planet who has not in some way had to experience sexual abuse in her life. There's not a woman that I've met in this group, any of these groups, I'm talking about a single one, who hasn't had some guy in the street say, hey, nice things, or had somebody touch them inappropriately or had somebody try to exercise power when they were drinking or when they were their boss or whatever. Not one. And it's begun to really strike me that I think as a man, I don't think I understand what women go through. My image now on YouTube groups for, with professionals for about six months or five, something like that, is that to be an attractive young woman today in the world, in the Western world, is to walk around like waiting to run into a briar patch or a rose bush in the world. When that hand's going to reach out, when, that sat, when someone's going to say something, when someone's going to act in a certain way, at the gym, at work, after work, um, at, the, at, the yoga, you know, at the store, on the bus, it's just inevitable that an attractive young woman in the world today is going to get a comment or a touch or something worse. And I didn't understand, as a man who does not experience this in life, you know, I, I mean, my thought was like, oh, yeah, so one woman in the workplace or one woman here or there, and it's horrible, it's bad, but, you know, I mean, it, life is hard for everyone, and it's hard to be a woman. But never did I realize every woman. And what does it mean that every woman has had to put up some kind of defense against the world because she expects at some point that someone's going to call her out for her body or objectify her verbally or touch her inappropriately or ask her something that is not okay. What is it like if the women in our culture walk around having to shield themselves from this every day? Honestly, Carol, the men don't get it. They don't see it. I didn't get it, but I get it now. Yeah, and, and I get that you didn't get it because you aren't a woman and you right. haven't been objectified like that. And you're right, Rob. I don't know any woman who has not been through that experience. Something, too. a crack yeah. call, a touch. Uh, and can I tell you, Carol, what the, how I relate to it? Because since I am a man and that hasn't happened to me, and I don't walk around the street expecting someone to be rude to me, basically, or call me out sexually. Um, but I do know what it's like to walk around feeling like when you go out for the day, you never know when you're going to get a thorn or run into a rose bush. And the only way that the men, I found, could relate to the women in this case, me too, is when we talk about bullying, that those of us who were bullies and bullied as boys, who really you know, had a lot of people pushing us around for whatever reason, not, not a big kid or not an assertive kid or whatever, you know, I really relate to and remember what it was like to go to high school and think, I don't know who's going who's gonna to say something to me today. Is it going to be in a lunchroom? Am I going to get hit on the ball field? Am I going to not pick for a team? Is someone going to say something in a class? But I knew, because I was frequently bullied, that I had to look out 
for what was going to happen to me. And I knew what it was like to walk around the world not feeling safe. But it, since being an adult, you know, especially as a male, that's just not my experience. But adult women continue to go through this every single day, and it just blew my mind. It's gotten worse because our society has gotten more and more and more sexualized, and it is okay to talk to women about their breasts and their bodies. And, and women on some level have desensitized to that sexuality, and they're feeding into it a bit too. I mean, I remember the Olympian who said, Ladies, work on not exposing your entire bodies. And she was shamed for, for reminding us that really we've got to work diligently on not projecting that very, very sexualized image that promotes men saying things to us. Well, but I would say to you, Carol, and I think this is a great conversation to have because I've had this conversation, you know, I've listened to this conversation, obviously, and, you know, I really don't think it's, you know, first of all, what woman, what attractive woman doesn't want to feel that men are attracted to her if she's heterosexual, and why shouldn't she be able to enjoy a man looking at her or finding her attractive, which is pleasurable, without having to fear that it's going to end up in something that's inappropriate. Um, And I agree with you, you know, certainly there are women who dress in ways and act in ways in the culture that I fear for them. I fear that they're going to put themselves in a situation that is out of control. But I don't fear for the woman who just wants to look good and feel good about herself and exercise, takes care of herself, and she enjoys someone finding her attractive. I shouldn't have to fear that someone's going to call her name or say something rude or, you know, that's just not okay. I agree 100%. No matter what's going on, there shouldn't be those cat calls. There shouldn't be that objectification verbally. Um, I, I'm just saying that I think we all play a role in this. And, oh, sure. And I'm a woman, and I'm going to say it up front and personal. I, At the same time, what I know is that sexuality oftentimes is, is the reflection of power and control. Mm-hmm. And in our society forever and ever and ever, men have typically tipped the charts and they've had more power and control. And so the sexuality part of it becomes very compulsive and very overwhelming. And that's, I think, the point that you're making. Well, it's just disturbing to me. You know, Carol, I, you know, I, I, heard, I hear things. And you're right, it isn't just, well, I'll just say what's disturbing to me. I remember one, there was a really lovely African-American woman, I think she was a social worker in my, one of the groups that I did, and she couldn't have been more than 26, 28. She was a, you know, someone who had gone straight through school and good for her, smart kid, you know. And she said how, you know, she lived in New York or something like that, and she said how she would have, she would have to deal with the cat calls every single day. And finally, she went up to this guy who was particularly loud and said to him, uh, excuse me, sir, but do you have a daughter? Do you have a mother? Do you have a wife? Because I could be any of those things. And why are you saying this to me when you wouldn't say that to them? And he, of course, got very angry and said, well, hey, you're not my wife. You're just a piece of blah, 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 blah on the street. But she was a beautiful young woman who was on her way to school every day. So, yeah, it's hard for me to hear that without getting angry. Well, I absolutely agree. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is when we're working with sex addicts, the number one thing we tell them to do when they objectify women is to say to themselves, this is somebody's mother, this is right. somebody's daughter, this is somebody's sister, this is somebody's blah, blah, blah. And, and then so look it, away. Yeah. And then look away. So acknowledge your attraction, acknowledge the person's humanity, and keep moving. That sounds about right to me. 
Yeah, and so here is that same situation, only different, in that men that are not necessarily sex addicts but feel privy to objectifying women or commenting on their looks or their body. Or Or touching without permission. Let me just guide you to your desk, you know, but I'll grab the small of your back. And she didn't ask you to touch her there. You wouldn't do that to a man. Why are you doing that to her? Mm -hmm. Um, It's just on every level. And and, and believe me, I mean, Carol, I really... I want to be really respectful because I understand that this is a journey that we're on together, all of us. And I don't want to demonize anyone, but I really do remember how men talked about women 25, 30 years ago. I remember how we talked about all kinds of things, minorities, you know. So I think there are, that we can grow. We can become more articulated in how we treat each other. And I think that men can find a way to find the right place to be able to express their interests and understand what it isn't okay. And I think I have a I have a thought about why we haven't gotten there. It actually came up one of the goals. Um, oh, tell me about that. So this is a cool thought. It was interesting to me. You know, I think a lot, right? This is why I read all these books and stuff. But it was interesting to me the thought, and I wonder what you think. You know, when we went through feminism the first time in the seventies, well, really beginning in the really in the in the mid sixties, all the way through the late seventies, when the Equal Rights Amendment finally did not pass. But if you look at that fifteen year period. It was also the period of the greatest sexual exploration and sexual flowering that we have seen in our culture. We were exploring sex. I don't know if you don't remember. The 70s were like, well, it was a free-for-all now. And, what, and I understand that we've moved beyond that point as a culture. We treat each other differently. But I wonder if maybe when women were articulating feminism back in the 70s and the late 60s, what they didn't get to fully articulate is sexual boundaries. Because at the very same time they were discovering their sexuality, you could take a pill and not get pregnant, you could go have, have sex with anyone you wanted to, and it was the period of free love, you know. And I wonder if for so whatever reason, those things happened basically at the same time, those feminism and the sexual revolution, almost in tandem, that maybe women didn't get to have the voice they needed to have then around this issue, and we need to catch up. That's, what do you think about that? <laughs> That's my idea. You know, I... I absolutely agree with you 100%. And, you know, I was sitting here thinking, because this kind of um, conversation is so important to have. And Everywhere. All we have all should be friends. having this conversation. Yeah. Well, and, you know, clearly I know that what I just said to you about making women responsible for not objectifying themselves, because they do, they do at times. And so absolutely. I thought, oh, this is so so unpopular for me, because what I know to be true is that Women clearly are victimized a lot of the time, and they've been sexualized forever, and it's only gotten worse because our society is so sexualized. And as long as we have technology that's affordable, anonymous, and certainly accessible, it feeds the brain permission to be more and more sexualized. I really believe that. And that's for both males and females. Now, I'm wondering what you think might be the antidote for a culture that sexualizes women and Rob, here's the unpopular part, and where women sexualize themselves. You know, when I think of Beyonce and I think about her Super Bowl performance and I think about her gyrating around and she's the most beautiful, lovely, talented woman in the world, but when you're when you're dancing around in ways that simulate sex it's going to make everybody, males and females, feel sexual. 
and then, but, 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 Carol, I'm going to push back a little bit, and I'm going to say, so what? So what? So what if I see someone that's right? Say maybe someone is dancing in a seductive way. That does that mean I absolutely can't help myself? But say the wrong thing, or touch someone without permission, or call out their body parts. Okay, here's what I think. I think I live by two coaching principles more than anything in the world. And the first one, Rob, is I'm 100% responsible for my own behavior. And so I do think it's important not to exude a sexuality that is primal. I do. And I'm a woman, and that's what I believe. And I'm not making women responsible for the reactions of men in any shape or form, but I am saying that women have a responsibility to not be primal because it exudes that in our culture. Well, 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 let's let's, let's keep talking about this because I would, again, challenge you and say the words time and place. I don't think it's a good idea for a woman to walk into the workplace in a tubeless tank top and short shorts and expect to be treated with respect. That's not going to happen. She's going to be treated badly. Um, uh, one of the other things, and this is directly related to this, that's why I've set the people who are listening. One of the conclusions that I've reached very clearly after doing all these groups related to problem, romantic, and sexual behavior in the workplace is mm-hmm. really an obvious answer. We can't have it. We don't, look, you know, there was a time, not very long ago, thank goodness, when a woman didn't really have to worry about, a woman who had a man or a dad or a brother did not have to worry about this stuff because if you said something to my sister's kids, if you said something about my wife's whatever, I was going to go beat the crap out of you. I, my woman had my protection, and like it or not, that's how the world was up until the 1960s. But certainly by the 1960s and early 70s, women didn't want men to protect them anymore. They thought they could protect themselves, and they didn't want to be dependent on men or responsible to men. Or, you know, they wanted their, their independence, and clearly you've gotten it. But um, what came in to replace that? Dad will go get him. Your brother will beat him up. The law. You know, it was around at, at the time when we started to develop you know, sexual harassment laws and all kinds of laws in the workplace. But the law is not is, is very very ambiguous. The law doesn't really define between subjective and objective. And you looking at my boobs? No, I just thought you had a nice shirt on. You know, it's very hard to deal with these things legally. And so the conclusion that I've really reached is that I don't think people should date or mate in the workplace. I do not think that's the place. To be. And why? Because we can't handle it. If we can handle it, this stuff wouldn't happen. So maybe what we need is a really black and white rule. And yes, yes, I know. All of you folks are going to say you're listening to it, but I spend 16 hours a day in the week in the workplace, or 16 hours a day in the workplace, and that's where I meet the most people. And how would I ever find anyone to date if it wasn't at work? Sorry, but work is not a good place for dating. It's not a good place for romance. You and I both know how it turns out, even when in the best of circumstances. Mm-hmm. So maybe that would help concept and you know that's where I just sounded a little bit conservative and now you're sounding a little conservative Um, I agree that that's where boundaries get very very blurred if it's in the workplace and there's an attraction and you're dating and working together it can be very very difficult and And I don't want to see your what you call your primal sexuality in the workplace but if you want to act that way out of a club where you Dating, you know, I don't 
such a bad thing. I mean, in other words, I don't know that it's black and white or sexuality, but I think a woman can, or a man can be pretty sexy and sexual in the right circumstances. But don't oh, bring I that to the workplace. Don't bring that to, you know, situate family. You know, it, I, 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 because we struggle with knowing or being able to contain ourselves when the wrong situation is present, but we feel tempted to do it, maybe we need stronger rules. Well, and I agree. And let's face it, that is the beautiful thing about the Me Too movement is there has been so much consolidation of power, empowerment. I mean, Mm -hmm. Kelly would never be in jail. And, well, he actually got out today. But, I mean, are you feeling good about seeing that some of these people are getting called on their... You know, Carol, I, I... I, I really I have to have you a by podcast so I can ask you all of these good questions I want to say because I know your answers is just as good as mine um, and it's just as interesting because um, you're an interesting person I enjoy doing this with you. Um, you're welcome. Um, but um, I've actually so I have very mixed feelings. So this is the other piece um, of what you're talking about now, which is seeing the parade of men on television who have been called out for sexual issues, whether it's Weinstein or Stacey or, you know, uh, or, you know, some of the ones, or R. Kelly or whatever it is. And I don't, I have a problem with how that is happening because what I think all we see, and I bring this up in the Mickey groups, what we see is, you know, it's like a shooting gallery. The guy stands up, he's been bad, he gets shot down, he's out, he's gone. He's lost his job. He's lost his business the next. And then we move to the next situation. But I don't know what that's really teaching us. What are we really learning about how to treat each other better or what really went on to make that happen? Or even more important, can a man have redemption? How do we learn that if all we do is eliminate these men and we never have the conversation about what happened before, during, and after? That's why I'm doing these groups. Um, so to your point, um, the men on TV, you know, the famous ones, you and I know there's a line of men who've done similar things right behind them. Um, it's not like only famous, powerful people abuse uh, their power for sex, but those are the ones we're going to hear about, so I think it's important to say that. But I've actually been sad because I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan. I'm a huge, I like that, Kelly. You know, their music means something to me. It matters. I know, I know. It's in my soul. I grew up dancing to it, you know. And this is the hard part is I don't want to give up the idealized image. and I don't want to give up the feeling that, I, that you know, music is so profound. It's one of our most profound senses, really, sound, rhythm. great book by, uh, called Musicology. Was, um, anyway, there's a great book on that called Musicology, which I highly recommend reading, just about how we respond to rhythm. But it's such a primal thing that we all come together around, and, and we attach to it emotionally. And so to see, it's been sad for me to try to rip apart. And I think many people, well, I love this. This happened at a time in my life. We danced to this at our wedding. Um, we had our first child and played this at their community, you know, whatever. And now we're going to this and wrote that song is this. So it's hard for me to separate the art from the artist. And that's been painful personally. Um, I also want to just, you know, since you're asking, um, you know, there are different kinds of stories. We have, the, like, the Weinstein Spacey stories, which I'm hopefully will unwind more and we'll learn more and try to grow from those. But then there are also the ones like our Kennedy and Michael Jackson. They won't really ever get left beyond the obvious. And, um, um, and those are just plain painful. Um, I want to say something more about that, too. Oh, I want to just say personally, and, and I don't know if you relate to this, Carol, but I know some of your listeners will. 
Um, having been a survivor of sexual abuse, emotional abuse uh, in my family, and also having struggled with some of the issues that we is the reason for this show, I, I, I somehow expect myself to just sail through a time like this and not have any feelings about it, especially since I'm a therapist. But I got to tell you, I sat down because I was really interested, and I watched all six segments of Surviving R. Kelly three weekends ago. And, and then I couldn't figure out why was I so sick to my stomach all weekend? Why did I just want to crawl in bed and not do anything? What? And I turned to myself, what's wrong with me? Am I getting sick? I forget how profoundly that stuff affects people like us. And to watch, you know, the R. Kelly thing. And then I watched Whitney Houston's documentary, which just came on Hulu, and I saw that her primary issue was sexual abuse and addiction, which we knew about, but sex abuse and childhood, extensive sexual abuse. It's, her brother had it. She had it. No wonder why the woman was so tortured. And then I hear that the Michael Jackson documentary is coming out to tell the real story of what happened in Neverland. And sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel like I've, I've had enough. Like, I don't want to hear anymore. I, I know. What, I, you know what I mean? And, and it starts to feel a little bit like a parade or a circus rather than really any search for answers or healing. And that, I think, is hard on everyone. Oh, I 100% agree with that, and I can hear it in your voice. You're really, really pained by that, and I understand that. And I think the world also feels that same way. Yes. And yet, again, because you are an educator and you are a sexologist and you are a clinician and you are a male who loves music and loves entertainment and, and loves, loves women and loves people and women, um, you know, what do you believe that the antidote is for this? I think this is it, sweetie. Like, this is the Talking antidote. about it, huh? We are being intimate about these issues and vulnerable about these issues. The world moves like, you know, dropping a stone in water. I mean, each one of these stories interacts with the next story. Someone else has something to say. These are worldwide, global just conversations that are going on. And I understand that they'll always be the person who blames the victim. But, but at least the victims are talking. You know, it's not like these issues weren't going on three years ago, five years ago, 14 years ago. People are talking about things that we haven't talked about before as a culture. And, gosh, that just makes me incredibly hopeful because I know that forward and that, and that you know, we always lean toward justice. So I'm not worried about it. I think, you know, look how women were treated 30, 40 years ago compared to now. I think we're doing better. Um, I get to get married today. I wasn't able to be married five years ago, so we're doing better. Oh, I but think we're progressing beautifully. We've got a ways to go, but we are progressing beautifully. You know, Carol, when think about child abuse. You know how no one used to talk about that. There weren't any laws. When we were growing up, there weren't any laws against child abuse. You could beat the crap out of your kid if you wanted to, and nothing would happen unless they ended up in the hospital. So, you know, to that, to where we are, is very different. But we had to go through a period, if you remember, where people used to say things like, oh, that many children can't be abused and abuse can't really be like that. And there was the McMartin case, you know, everyone was talking about trauma and child abuse in the 80s and the 90s. It took a long time from the beginning for the conversation to then get to the point where we would say, oh, right, this happens a lot. And we had to talk about it and now we understand it and we, we have uh, incorporated it. I think that's where we are with this. You know, we're not where we need to be, but boy, is it good we're talking about it. No, and I would agree, too, and that's a great way to um, 
feel like we're being proactive. And I, and I do believe laws are going to change, and I do believe that mm-hmm. things um, there is going to be some sense of justice, although I, I have to agree with you, too, when all of a sudden there are alleged survivors or victims, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call them, I call them survivors, who are making accusations about perpetrators, oftentimes it begins to feel like, wow, this is, uh, this person could be a sitting duck, you know. Right. Everyone's an opportunist. Yes. I 100% agree. So and now, you know what? That's what? true. There yeah. are some people, I'm absolutely certain, who thought, oh, well, that was fun sex 30 years ago. Oh, but now I'm going to call it something else because I was 15. You know, and even though it was, you know, I, I'm sure there are people who were doing something that was volitional, especially back in the 70s when it was a free-for-all. And now they're saying, oh, I can get some money out of that person because it was actually abuse. Well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe. I don't know. But, yes, of course that's going on. But that doesn't still obscure. That would only be brought out if someone was trying to obscure the larger issue, which is we're all talking about this. And, and by the way, painful, Kavanaugh, and, and forward. Mm-hmm. And that's how we started the summer. You know, I, I had, to, I don't know, I got up at 6.30 in the morning and watched that thing live. Mm-hmm. And I, so I feel really proud of us as a culture, proud of you, proud of me, proud of all of us that we're not, that we're being fairly unflinching in the face of these really difficult truths. Um, I don't hear a universal voice saying, oh, they don't deserve to be, these women don't deserve to be heard. I hear it here and there. But we're growing and we are achieving our goals because we're being intimate and open with each other. And I, and it's painful and it sucks, but isn't this what every couple needs to do to get well? <laughs> oh, 100%. Now, I thought that was interesting that you said you didn't hear much um, maybe uh, adversarially about this when, when I did. But here's what I believe. I, I really believe this. Rob, you know, you got your incredible sexologist degree and your Ph.D., in sexual education, and it really allowed you to look at this situation from all sides. You know, we all have our biases, but you do a really nice job of looking at it from all sides, and that's why you are a great moderator and can facilitate open conversations. Now, I want to ask you, because clearly you have created a platform in about 500 different ways to talk about this stuff. Will you share with our listening audience what you're doing to talk about sex addiction, the Me Too movement? I mean, you've got so much going on in terms of your podcast and your educational forums. Well, as you all know, Carol, because you are also a leader in this way, um, it it isn't enough to write an article in a local magazine or or get printed in a newspaper. People don't really hear your voice that way. You have to kind of be everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of have to be everywhere there a little bit. You know, we are so divided up. So I try to put a little time into everything. So I put time into writing. So there are many, many books you know, that I've written talk about them. Um, books are easy to find. They're on Amazon. Um, I blog weekly for Psychology Today on a column called Love in the, Sex and Love in the Digital Age. Um, but I'm more proud of things that are really fun, like podcasts. I've been podcasting now for about eight months. I'm not as I'm not as I don't have as much out there as you do, but I've I've gotten a bunch, and I've been talking to some amazing well, some really famous people, some therapists who really know their stuff, and we've had some great conversations about healing relationships. And anyway, the podcast is called Sex, Love, and Addiction. Um, 
Yeah, and then there's a website. So there's a website called Sex and Relationship Healing.com, and I have about 12 to 15 volunteer therapists on there every week who are uh, moderating groups and sitting in our groups and educating people. And if you're a sex addict, you can go to Sex and Relationship Healing.com for free and sit in on groups and get some support. If you're a wife of a sex addict or a husband of a sex addict or a female sex addict, all, we're trying to serve as many people as we can by putting up groups and educational forums. And this is all free. So, you know, I understand that, you know, I want to learn without having to pay for it. So do you. And I believe that, you know, we, we, I can give this away and still be really be very, very comfortable in my world. So anyway, that's what we're doing. I know I'm going to get down there soon to do a webinar. <laughs> I would love that. And, you know, and um, clearly, you, you've done five groups so far about Me Too, mm-hmm. and you have done, I mean, these podcasts come out all the time that you do, and you've got free resources on your website. And we're talking sexandrelationshiphealing.com and seekingintegrity.org. Those are the two main websites that you operate from, Correct. Uh, actually, they're both dot com, seekingintegrity dot com, and sexualization dot com. And I will say that we're opening treatment programs, my first in many years. So, um, and you don't even know about this, but we'll be opening our first. I'm opening two chem sex programs for people who struggle with um, cross addictions. So, mm-hmm. we have a program in California, residential. We have a program overseas in Thailand, residential, and those will be opening in probably the next couple of months. So. I'm actually hoping to to, to make treatment better um, for more people than they've experienced out there because I've been in that world and I know what they've gotten and I think we can do better. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, for our listening audience, I'm talking with Dr. Rob Weiss and he is part of a business called Seeking Integrity and that is seekingintegrity.com. He's written Sex Addiction 101, Out of the Doghouse, Cruise Control, Always Turned On, Closer Together, Further Apart, and then his latest book, Codependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. So, Rob, you've got to tell them a little bit about what prodependence is because this is a new paradigm that is going to shift the way people look at addiction and the loved ones who care so much for the addicts. Did I really write all those books? That's not good. What happened? You really, you really <laughs> did, and they're all fabulous. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, I do appreciate it. See, what happened in my life when I was with all those books? But I actually have one. Uh, I just uh, so you asked about codependence very quickly. I I've never really liked codependency as a model. I, I respect that the idea of codependency from the 1980s to the present has given people a way to think about loving an addict that gave them some answers they didn't have uh, about how to do that, how to love an addict, how to live with an addict how to survive living with a troubled person. But there's always been kind of a blaming, in my opinion, shaming quality to codependence because it implies that there's something wrong with you for having met this person, married this person, committed to this person, and, oh, my gosh, you're an alcoholic, so there must be something wrong with you. And so this model of codependence really just says, you know what, if you love a troubled person, good for you, and if you stay with them, that's even better, and if then they start to fail due to drug addiction, alcoholism, or depression, and you stay longer and you devote more attention to them and you give up your time to help them, then that's truly amazing love. And even if you couldn't get them sober, you couldn't get them mentally healthy, 
you stayed with them and you loved them, and now with help from people like us, maybe you can help get them sober and love them even better. So I just, codependence and the idea is about not blaming anyone for the love that they give to a troubled or challenged person. How many parents blame themselves for a child's struggle? And, you know, it's just not helpful how we look at that stuff. So thanks for asking. I am trying, asking for a shift in the culture. Um, but I think it's starting to happen. Well, and we've got a lot of clinicians and coaches that listen to this show. And I know that Kim Buck, who is mm-hmm. part of this kind of think tank, uh, is is scheduling dates and times for the first online meeting to discuss protocols, which is that new treatment paradigm we just talked about for partners and loved ones of those struggling with addiction. Especially Kim is really connected to sex addiction. Mm-hmm. So if anybody has any uh, desire to be a part of that, they can email me because through Zoom, we're all going to be getting online and thinking together about how we can advocate for addicts and for the people that love them so that, as you indicated earlier, those people, partners, and loved ones of mentally ill and loved ones of drug or alcohol addicts, they're not pathologized, they're not villainized, they're celebrated and given a hand up whenever they need one. Well, look, just because I didn't know how to love you into being well doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the love that I gave. And I think that's, and, and I have had so many parents, and, and I feel strongly about that. So many wives, so many people have written me and said, thank you for creating a model where I don't have to feel bad about myself for staying with this person or loving this person or trying to help this person. And how could we feel badly about trying to help the people that are closest to us? I mean, that's just natural. So. Thank you for your support, Carol, and, and I will see you on that Zoom line. Just to yeah, how long is that meeting going to last? I don't know, but I can tell you this. Um, we've had 49, count them, 49 therapists volunteer to get involved with group parents because they want to, and I've never seen that before. So I'm excited for the work to come. Yeah, it's just amazing. You're like an amoeba. You just get in there and figure out how you can make a difference in the lives of addicts, their loved ones, clinicians, and coaches. Um, Do you have anything coming up in the future that we don't know about before we end the show? No, I just want to say, Carol, that I want to have you on a podcast, and so we'll have to figure out what what we want you you to talk about in my world. Um, But, no, I I will stop by saying that I really do think we're going through a time that involves more change than just politics. Mm -hmm. We're really looking at how we... You know, there was a time, maybe you remember, Carol, where we were taught we had to say thank you and please and we had to write little notes. And, you know, there was a way of conducting relationships that was very formal and very organized. And, boy, did I write a thank you notes at Christmas time. I, I, I hated that. But anyway, I did it. But, you know, that, that, that that's not the world we live in anymore. And I think we're trying to figure out how to treat each other with dignity and respect without some of the rules that we used to follow. And we're having to find our way, and that's a little difficult. But I, you know, I am deeply spiritually connected to the belief that um, that we are endlessly adaptable, and we as being, people, beings, are endlessly adaptable, and we're here, you know, to help each other achieve. Yeah. And so I'm not worried. I, I'm actually thrilled to see the struggle because through the struggle we'll be healing. Um, and we're announcing that you and me all over the place. So thank you for your work. Absolutely, and I've 
always appreciated our banter back and forth because we <laughs> definitely have a little bit of a difference, but we can really appreciate each other's point of view and know where the other person is coming from. And I, mm-hmm. and that's what really will change the world is when we can all talk about things and agree wow. to agree and disagree and agree again. You know. What See, I mean? we're doing it right here. I yeah. like that. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Carol, and I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for Thanks being patient while we had the yeah while we had this technical. I don't know what the heck happened. That's the first time that's ever happened. You came on and just, I think you were too explosive. It just kind of yeah, fell right. apart. So thank um, you, Rob. Thank you for your kindness and the good work that you're doing here. And boy, do we need it. And we'll right. see you online talking about predependence. We will see you online, and I do. I have the link for any clinician or coach that wants to hear more about this incredible movement. And, Rob Weiss, we will have you on soon. And you know me. I'd love to be on your show anytime. So you on the way. Okay. <laughs> Take care. And be at peace. You too. Now the dates. All right. That was Rob Weiss, and obviously he is a man who has made it his mission to talk about sexuality and all the things that go with it. And that is the amazing part of who he is. He has always done that. What an educator at heart. And I hope you enjoyed our frank, open conversation tonight. And so we are going to end the show. And I appreciate you being here with me. You know what I say. I told I told Rob, I live by two coaching rules. The first one is I'm 100% responsible for my behavior. If a car hits me, I'm responsible for deciding how that affects me. And then I always say the second coaching principle is to go in for the big ask. Now that means ask for your needs to be met. Ask your neighbor if he'll help. Ask your sister if she'll come by. Ask your friend if she'll work with you. I mean, just go in for the big ask. You get kind of scared about rejection, but there's no need to be. You just go in for the big ask, and you will see miracles happen. You know, tonight I um, read to my husband. I was cleaning out my file cabinet, and I read to my husband a letter that I wrote to a radio producer here in Indianapolis, a.k.a. I had two shows on that station. They were, they, one was Drive Time on Saturday night, and it was called Sex, Love, and Relationships with Carol the Coach, and the other one was just called The Carol the Coach Show. But prior to that, I kept writing him letters, and I kept saying, I want to be on your station. You've got the biggest station in the Indianapolis market. I want to be on the station. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read you the letter I wrote. It was an example of the big ask. And boy, I hope I can find it because it was amazing. I just had it. Um, I actually told this producer that, you know what, I was married, but I didn't have kids. And so I would be able to afford him a lot of opportunities because I wasn't, I wasn't um, 
entangled in family. I could really be available to the station. And then the other thing I said was, hey, I have a winning and loving personality. And then three, I give great advice. I'm direct and honest. And, you know, people can disagree with me, but I think I give good advice. And then four, I, I teased them and I said, I'm cheap. I won't cost you much. I'll generate money. I'll generate sponsorships. I know you will really appreciate the marketability that I will bring your station. And then I said, I'm eloquent. I'm articulate. I even said, I'm brilliant. I might not be brilliant. But, you know, sometimes you got to tell yourself. you got to believe in who you are. Well, he sent me a rejection letter. He said, sorry, Carol, I've had a good time reading your letter, and I so appreciate your ongoing devotion to wanting to work here. But at this point, we don't have anything available. I just kept writing and going in for the big ask. And within a year and a half, I got my first radio show, one hour, every Saturday night. And then, within a year and a half after that, I got a two-hour call-in radio show. And it was amazing. I loved it. You know, I got to do it for three or four years, and then I was out of there. He lost his job. I lost my job. That's just how radio and television and newspapers work. But I'm going to ask you, I'm going to challenge you, the audience, to think about one thing you really want, and figure out how you can ask for it, whether it be your partner, whether it be your boss, whether it be your sister, your mother, your neighbor, your friend. I want you to go in for the big ask. And I want to hear about it. Send me an email to carol at carolcoach.com. And let's just all support each other together. Because as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times, so I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. And let's do this together, shall we? And I will see you next week.